you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel according to John, the first chapter. We have been looking at the prologue to John's Gospel, the first 18 verses, and we're going to conclude that this Lord's Day morning. If for some of you, you think we've been going a little bit slowly through this first chapter, I would just advise you that this week, as I looked at the five verses before us, I thought that in and of itself could be three or four sermons. But I have resisted the urge, and it is but one. And so we're going to look this morning at verses 14 through 18. But what I would like to do for context for us is to read the entirety of the prologue, starting at verse 1. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that You would use Your word. Use Your word to make us see the greatness of our Savior. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might tell others of the greatness of Jesus. 
This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning we come to the culmination of John's prologue. John started by showing us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The emphasis was on who Jesus Christ was before He came into the world. The greatness of our Savior was described in theological terms. He is the Word, the life, light in the darkness. Now John turns to the greatness of the Savior as the one who became man. John is reaching down to you and me and how we benefit from the mission of the Son of God. He's going to tell us three things this morning that the Word did when He became Jesus for us. The first thing that we will see is the incarnation, how the Word became flesh for His people. The second thing that we will see is the declaration of Jesus Christ, the declaration of who God is and of His glory. And then thirdly, we will see the communication of grace and truth that Jesus gives to us. Incarnation, declaration, and communication. Let's begin then by looking at John's description of the incarnation. The first phrase of verse 14 is crucial. And the Word became flesh. John has previously described Jesus coming in this prologue. If you've been paying attention, you've seen that that has been the theme of these prologue sermons. Coming to bring life. Coming to bring light. Coming to claim children. And now coming to bring grace and truth. Well, what we see here now is exactly what the coming of Jesus looked like. John connects the eternal Word with the person of Jesus who walked the earth. We're not to forget who Jesus is. He is the Word, very God, in the beginning, with God. But we cannot ignore who the Word became, Jesus. And that's... The first word that I'd like us to look at in this phrase this morning, became. This describes the incarnation. It's a theological term, the incarnation. It means that Jesus took on human nature. It does not imply that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. We should already get that. John has been at pains to tell us that. He told us the word was in the beginning that the Word was God, that the Word created all things, that the Word was not created. But the very word we're looking at now became the Greek word supports this also. Unlike a word we've seen earlier in this chapter, was, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, The verb was implies something already being in existence from the past and continuing into existence. The verb became here means took on or changed or 
as our translation has it, became. It implies a change. It means that the Son did not ever cease at any time to be God. Rather, it emphasizes that the Son became man at one point. Jesus took on human nature, and that was an addition, not a subtraction. Now, that's hard for us to understand and think about, because we clearly understand that humanity is less inherently than God. We are creation. He is the creator. We are finite. He is infinite. And so it's hard to think about Jesus not becoming less by taking on humanity. John has been at great pains here to avoid us thinking in that fashion. John would have been wasting all of the time of this first chapter if the Son had lost any aspect of His deity. Why would John go to the lengths that he's gone to to tell us about Jesus' existence in the beginning, before time, before creation, being the Word? The prologue here, all of it, is designed to show us the eternal divine nature of Jesus Christ. And it's because of this, it's hard for us to understand what it means for Jesus to take on humanity. How does the infinite inhabit a finite body? How is the Creator born into the world? How does God Himself grow and learn? These are questions that boggle the mind. But John tells us that the answer is not found in limiting who Jesus is. No, we have to instead magnify Jesus. The truth has always been what sets the biblical view of Jesus apart. Others will praise Jesus, but will not acknowledge that He's God. They will talk about all the good things that Jesus has done, but they will not submit to Him as the eternal God. What John tells you is the only way to look at Jesus is to confess that He is very God. The One who made you, and the One before whom you will stand in judgment. You do not get to judge Jesus. Jesus is God. Now the next word is fascinating by John's choice of it. The word became flesh. John could have used any number of perfectly serviceable Greek words here. He could have used the word for body. He could have used the word for man. But he deliberately chose a word that has a very earthy sound to it. It's a word that's used almost 150 times in the New Testament. Occasionally, it can be used, especially by the Apostle Paul, to, as a concept opposed to the Spirit, flesh as opposed to the Spirit. For example, we see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, that we've been going through in our evening sermons. Having begun by the Spirit, Paul asks the Galatians, are you now perfected by the flesh? He's setting up an opposition here between flesh and spirit. But most often, this word flesh refers to the very physical aspect of our being, our bodies. It means that the Son of God 
took on a body like ours. He had bones, skin, blood, teeth. Everything that you and I have in a body, Jesus took on. And this is not only a miracle, it is unprecedented. We can think about the wonder of Christmas, how God became a man, a babe in the manger. But the wonder goes beyond that. In no other religion does God become man, as John says. Gods can play man. For example, the the Greek gods in Greek mythology come to spend some time among humans. They take on a form that looked like humanity, but it was not humanity. It was designed to deceive mankind, but not Jesus. Jesus really and truly became man, like we are. The Bible tells us that he ate, he slept, he got tired as he walked. And I think oftentimes our problem with Jesus and his two natures is a math problem. We understand that 100% of something is all of it. And the problem comes when we think about Jesus and his divine nature and his human nature. We have to say he is 100% divine and 100% human. And the math doesn't add up for us. But that's okay. We have to confess what the Bible confesses. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, very God, very man, all Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. And perhaps the most important thing about Jesus taking on humanity is that he shared our nature and therefore he is able to sympathize with us. Jesus knows pain. He knows sorrow. Even death. He is like us. Except in one important respect. He is without sin. And that is crucial. It means that he is able to make atonement or satisfaction for your sin because Jesus knew no sin. Well, the next phrase that John gives us is a reminder of Jesus' connection to us. And the word became flesh and, John says, dwelt among us. Jesus took on humanity with a purpose. The incarnation is not just an exciting story. It's not a novelty. It was a means to an end. Jesus became man to dwell with men. Now this word dwell has a rich history and meaning. It comes from a root that means to pitch a tent. Now if we lived back in John's day, we would understand the origin of this word, to live or to dwell, meaning to pitch a tent. Because many... Even most people in those days lived nomadic lives. They went from place to place, living in tents instead of buildings. Nowadays, we have lost that sense of the word. We don't do that. We don't travel around. We don't live in tents. Well, unless, of course, we camp. And I have to tell you, I don't camp. I don't want to live in a tent. Tents are cold and drafty, and they don't keep out the rain, and the ground that you sleep on is hard. So 
I don't really understand what that means, and I think to some extent, many of us don't, because even if we do enjoy camping, we still live in a house, in a building. But when John tells us that Jesus dwelt among men, he's saying he pitched his tent among men. And John has something more in mind here than camping. You would get the idea if I used a slightly different translation. We might say, he tabernacled among us. Now, tabernacle is just a fancy word for live or be in a tent. But it has real meaning for us from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God told the Israelites to build a tent, a tabernacle, the tabernacle, capital T. And that would be the place where God would put his name and he would dwell in the midst of his people. He would dwell among the people of Israel during the Exodus. In the middle of the camp was found the tabernacle, often called the tent of meeting. And so when John uses this word here, he wants us to go back to the Exodus. He wants us to go back to God being among his people. But John will not be outdone. You see, this is one of many places in his gospel where John alludes to the Old Testament and he tells us, you remember this from the Old Testament? Well, Jesus is better. He's going to do it later. He's going to say, do you remember Moses? Jesus is better. And that's what he does here. Jesus, John says, is the better tabernacle. The true tabernacle. Just as in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was given to Israel during their wanderings, so Jesus is given to you and to me for our wanderings here on earth. Just as the tabernacle was humble in appearance, you may recall that God designed the tabernacle where all of the precious items, the gold, the silver, the inlaid, the jewels, were on the inside, not to be seen by those outside or who passed by. The outside of the tabernacle was made with furs and skins. It was nothing special to look at. It was humble. It wasn't even a fancy tent, and it was a tent. So Jesus, when he came, was humble. Isaiah tells us that he had no form that would make us stop and look, that we would see and be impressed by. No. Jesus came as a man. As, as one commentator puts it, even his name wasn't special. See, we think of Jesus as a special name because we know almost no one in our culture that names their child Jesus. But in John's day, Jesus was one of the most common names in Palestine. It's like hearing that the Messiah is Bob, or Mike, or John. It's just a name. There was nothing about Jesus that would draw our attention to him on the surface. But just as the only way to approach God in the Old Testament was to go to the tabernacle, so the only way today for you to approach God is through Jesus. Jesus is where God is found among his people. Do you see why Jesus became man? So that he could dwell among people like you. 
and me. So he could be at the center of everything you do. The center of everything you hope for. Everything you need. God condescended for your benefit. Well, next are a series of phrases that highlight the words seen and known. It's the second thing that John teaches us this morning. The declaration of Jesus Christ. Now, this follows on to the idea of the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle was to give a constant reminder of who God is to his people. So John tells us that Jesus came and he became man to declare to us something about God. There is something that we do not know about God, that we could not know about God apart from Jesus. Look with me at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is a direct statement by John. No one has ever seen God. This follows along with what we learn in our children's catechism. That God doesn't have a body like men. Now, do not believe the Sistine Chapel. God is not a muscular old man with a flowing gray beard. No. This is something the Bible says over and over again. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in 1 Timothy 6, he says, God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And then John himself in 1 John 4 writes, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And so here is the miracle of the incarnation. Jesus makes God known. That's what John means when he writes here in verse 18, the only God It's the same word that he uses here in verse 14, the only Son. Now, it can be difficult to see because there is a translation issue behind this. And it's so important that we're going to do a little mini Greek lesson this morning. This word only in verse 14 and in verse 18 is the Greek word monogenes. Now, so that doesn't intimidate you. Think of that as two words put together. Mono, which means one. Like if you have a monologue, it's one person talking. And genes, like generation or genealogy. To be born, to be begotten, to be brought into existence, so to speak. Monogenes means that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Historically, that's how this word has been translated. And if you learned or memorized John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, you may have learned it from the authorized version of the King James, which says that God sent His only begotten Son. Same word. This word is only used five times in the Bible, all by John. Four in this gospel, one in one of his letters. 
And in the 19th century, there was scholarship that grew up that said, no, 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 you're mistranslating this. It doesn't mean only begotten. That gives us an idea that maybe Jesus was born and didn't exist. How are you only begotten from eternity? We it really should mean something like one and only, or only and special, which I think is part of the meaning of this word, that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He is the special Son of God. And so there was a movement away from this. But recently, scholars are now coming back to what I believe is the proper translation, only begotten. You may not see me very often correct your English Standard Bible, but here I think the New American Standard, the King James, and the New King James have it better. It's not the only God, it is the only begotten God. It's not the only Son, it's the only begotten. The ESV actually puts the word Son in here that isn't even here because of the idea of begotten in this word. Well, why change our minds now? Well, the answer, of course, is computers. You may wonder, what? Pastor, how do computers help us do Bible translation? Well, I'll tell you. When I started studying Greek way back in the 1980s, I had a dictionary that was literally two and a half feet tall thick. And you could go and look up a word and it would give you the definition of the word and in the definition of the word it would list every instance or most of the instances where that word was used and how it should be translated as it's used by Plato or by Homer or by Aristotle. And everything was very difficult to do by paper. I don't know that any of you have used recently a Strong's Concordance, but you may remember that Strong the author of that concordance, went through the Bible and found every instance of every word in the Bible. You can actually open up a Strong's Concordance and turn to the word the and find every instance of the word the in the King James. Painstaking work. Now we have computer programs that will search every author who's ever written in every form of certain words. And because we have that available to us now, we realize this word was not just used five times by John. It was used in classical Greek, especially in one of the playwrights to refer to an only begotten son. And it's used over and over hundreds of times in the church fathers. And they use it in a very specific sense to refer to Jesus as a very specific kind of son. And this makes sense to us because John has just told us that we by faith can become children, sons of God. And lest we'd be tempted to think we would be sons of God the way Jesus is a son of God. John uses this word. That Jesus is distinct. He's a unique son of God. Now again, you may say, Pastor, I don't think anybody would possibly think that. Well, let me introduce you to the Mormons. Because their theology is, is that people become gods like Jesus, like God. That God is a six foot four man somewhere living on another planet and we can become gods and get our own planets and become gods. And John will have none of that. John says, you can be children of God by faith, but Jesus is wholly different. Jesus is God's only begotten son. Not just his only son. And that's because Jesus has a special relationship to God. This is how we get to the declaration. You see, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact 
image of the Father. When one of the disciples asks Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, Jesus' response is, haven't you seen me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what this begotten word is getting at. That when we see Jesus, Jesus declares to us who God is. Now, this is hard for us because when we think of begotten, we think in terms only of human beings. That Adam begot Seth. That Noah begot his sons. That David begot his sons. That it's a word that means someone coming into existence who wasn't in existence before. But that's not what John's describing here. He's not describing a birth. He's describing a connection between the Father and the Son. Jesus is eternally begotten because he already was in the beginning. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. So begotten is less about coming into creation and more about the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Summary. Because Jesus is the only begotten Son, he is the exact image of the Father. And he fully, completely, and perfectly reveals the Father to us. This is a mystery. It's hard for us to understand, but we have to accept what the Bible teaches. God's reality does not have to conform or fit our reality and our knowledge. After all, you can't fully comprehend God or eternity or infinity. But through Jesus, you can know God. But John goes beyond that. Jesus declares more than God to you. The only God, that is Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made God known. And that means that Jesus not only revealed God, but he has done so in a way that we can know about God. That's what John means at the end of verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen God truly. We have more than a fleeting glimpse. We see His glory. This takes us back to Exodus again. The time of the tabernacle. Do you remember the incident of the golden calf when the Israelites built an idol to worship, to declare that this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt? And Moses is up on the mountain and Moses comes down and he says, why do I see this dancing and singing and, and carrying on and what is going on here? And I think perhaps one of the worst stories in all of Scripture, children do not follow this. Aaron looks at Moses and says, well, yeah, we had this fire and this just popped out. I didn't do anything. How did this happen? I don't know. Of course, it's foolish. They'd fashioned a God. And God says that he's going to wipe out the Israelites and start again with Moses. And Moses goes onto the mountain, back to God, and he pleads with God. He says, retain your name and your glory, Lord. Spare your people. And God does. He relents. And then Moses says, please, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, 
you cannot see my glory and live. No one can see the glory of God and live. And he says, but this is what I will do. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. That's where Rock of Ages gets it from. He will put Moses in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by and cover your eyes and then once I have gone by, you will see my back. Now, what does the back of God look like? I don't know because God doesn't have a body. But I think what Moses is telling us there in the book of Exodus is that God gives only a small portion, a shadow, we might say, of His glory for Moses to see from within the rock that he might live. But John tells us that Jesus reveals the glory of God in a greater and a fuller way. Do you know what that means? We are more blessed than Moses. We have the testimony of Jesus to understand God's glory. We have seen Jesus' glory, and that means we have seen God's glory. Well, what does the glory of Jesus look like? John tells us. And that's the third thing that we see. John tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus communicates to us the blessings of God for us. In other words, Jesus not only shows us who God is, how glorious He is, but also what He has done for us. And John starts with grace. In verse 14, he tells us that Jesus, the Word, is full of grace. Now, full here means that grace is something that Jesus has in more than sufficient quantity. Don't get the idea that Jesus only has a little grace or that he could run out of grace. I think sometimes when we think about sharing the gospel with others, we're afraid that we might oversell Jesus, that Jesus can't save that many people, that he can't be involved in that many nations with that many peoples. You know, think of how many people there are in the world today, billions and billions. But John says, don't you ever worry about that. Jesus is full of grace. And as he so often has already done in this chapter, John says it another way in verse 16. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace comes from Jesus' fullness. That is the idea of completeness. There can be no more grace in Jesus because all is there. And the grace we receive is grace upon grace. Grace on top of grace. If you were to ever think that Jesus' grace would end, you need to stop it. There's even more. There's ever more grace. So what is grace? Well, grace is the unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve it. We might even go further than that. It is the <coughs> demerited favor of God. We have positively undeserved it. We deserve not grace, but condemnation and wrath. And grace 
is more than mere kindness and goodness. It's not politeness or niceness. No, it is the free gift of God that we do not deserve. And that gift is what brings us to God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us, By grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Grace is a gift of God to us, to bring us to God. So you need to ask yourself today, do you need grace? Look deep into your heart and think about all the times that you have fallen short. Think about all the things you've done that you regret all the ways that you know you have done wrong. And then remember the glory of God. That no one could see and live. Remember that Moses, his servant, couldn't even look upon God and live. Can you be so flippant as to think that God will excuse all of your sin because you are a nice person? Are you better than Moses? If you look, you will see that you need a savior. That's what Paul tells us in verse, or excuse me, John tells us in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is that savior. He is greater than Moses. He has brought grace. Come and find grace at the foot of the cross. There's always enough grace with Jesus. The final thing that John tells us is that Jesus communicates truth. Notice that John says this twice in both verse 14 and 17. Grace and truth. They are linked together. Now we often separate them. We either want to be known as grace people. That is, we're loving. We're accepting. We're not caught up in all the details. We give people a pass. Or else, some of our personalities, we want to be known as truth people. <clears throat> that is, we have strong convictions. We're right. We're principled. We don't just give people a pass. We're for truth. But the reality is that Jesus is full of both grace and truth. Without grace, truth is harsh and unwelcoming. But without truth, grace is mere sentimentality. Truth makes grace grace. You remember Ephesians 2, verse 8, that we looked at? That we are saved by grace? Go on. Through faith. Now, what does that mean? What is through faith? 
Through faith is through believing. And what do you believe? The truth. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace and truth working together in the person of Jesus Christ. John is telling you that the only way that you can be saved, <coughs> the only way that you can have grace is by believing the truth. You have to believe the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. You can't pick and choose what you want about Jesus. Jesus has come full of grace and truth. You have to have the whole Jesus. Well, this magnificent prologue sets forth for us the majesty and the glory of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. John does this so that we might know who Jesus truly is and that we might know that Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the one who declares who God is to us. And He is the one who brings salvation. We need to see that John was captivated by Jesus. He could imagine no greater person. Are you captivated by Jesus? John wants you to be. He wants you to know Jesus. To believe in Jesus. So that you will have life in His name. Jesus offers that life. Eternal life. Right now. Don't turn away. Come to the one who brought grace and truth. Let's pray.